hello to you, our dear listener. So glad that you've decided to listen in for the next, uh, let's say, what do you think, like half an hour, 40 minutes? It's a bit it's a bit dangerous to predict the length of the podcast before we start the discussion, especially discussion on this week's topic, which has, you know, there's many cans and each can contains many worms. So um, I don't know where this will lead. Uh, at least at the time of the start of recording, Ken and Luke have, have not joined us. Um, we've had to make some last minute plans and hopefully they'll be able to chip in but if they don't um i'll do it with you lot yeah i'm here i'm lachlan um speaking of cans of worms cam you you might be intrigued to know that the title of the sunday lesson in in this week's study is called immortal worms so i fear i fear that not only might we be opening some cans of worms but but unfortunately a couple of these worms might might actually be immortal do the immortal worms do they get fed to a mortal trout? Um, <laughs> but they can't be fed, I presume. Oh, I don't know. It depends on what mortality works. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, that's um, that's a difficult thing. Like, we're going to jump in and look at a couple of sort of broad themes and questions from the lesson. Before I um, we do, though, I want to share a conversation I did have with Ken. I was hoping you'd be here. Um the lesson we've noticed a couple of times this quarter favours uh, what I call the answer question. Uh, it's the question which is actually an answer, hmm. but phrased in such a way that they can put a question mark underneath it. And the one we looked at, I think, last week was, why does the story of the rich man and Lazarus not provide insight into the state of the dead? Hmm. Uh, which, which, you know, assumes a premise that has not been... Dem- which can perhaps be adequately demonstrated, we thought it could be, but it, the question doesn't allow for the discussion of that. It, it, it's an answer about something, and then asks for a comment. Mm. And um, I, I Ken, I don't think was with us on that recording. And I asked him afterwards because I was lunching at his house the next day. I said, Ken, uh, I've got a question following on from this quarter's lesson pamphlet. Uh, why do you enjoy leading questions so much? And he told me that in court he would disallow the question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, well, um, I mean, you're spot on about the questions. Here's one from this week that, that it's introducing or related to the topic that we're meant to discuss. Um, what does the truth about hell reveal to us about God's love, especially in contrast to the idea of eternal torment? Yeah. So it presupposes the idea of hell does reveal something about God's love. Um mm. And, and the concept and it, of, uh, yeah, and it presupposes yeah. the idea that the that the truth about hell uh, is yeah. not. It must be in contrast to the idea of eternal torment. Yeah. Any any person who wants to be cured of asking questions of this sort must ask them of young children, because hmm. young children refuse to play the game. And I, I may have shared this on an earlier episode, but my favourite moment, almost ever in a church service, was after a children's story in which. And a very elaborate story had been used to explain that sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because he's got something better in store for us. That was the obvious moral to any adult in the... And it's a fairly involved, very successful children's story, and the children were very engaged. And at the end, uh, the the uh, the lady asking, telling the story said, uh, why? Um, so why does God sometimes not answer our prayers? And gave the microphone to a young boy who said, because he can't talk. 
<laughs> that's that's endured with me as a as a wonderful moment. Um, so, like this week, we're talking about purgatory. Yeah, well, purgatory and hell, and of course, the two are related in that they are, are more or less um, widely held. Certainly, if you do a historical poll through Christian traditions, uh, a somewhat widely held picture, and they often go somewhat together of. Um, what happens after death? Hmm. In terms of my own sort of uh, gut feelings, I'm not comfortable with the idea of hell in the traditional uh, sense of the souls burning in eternal fire, although there seems to be passages in the Bible that suggest that. I don't seem myself either very comfortable with the concept that after we die, God might not be quite sure if we're ready. Um, and so there's a moment of sort of you know, bland and uninteresting existence while, you know, the messy, well, the paperwork's sorted out and our character's sort of brought <laughs> up to speed. And, you know, and then, you know, maybe the queue's a bit too long. Um, that sort of feel uh, to purgatory, um, I don't like. I, I do very much resonate, though, with the concept of change once we get to heaven. Ongoing, purgatory allows for ongoing change and growth of character. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I like that concept, and C.S. Lewis builds on it and Tolkien builds on it in, in books that we've quoted before. In particular, I'm thinking of The Great Divorce and mm. Leaf by Niggle, um, that that heaven will be exciting for many reasons, one of which is that there will be growth and challenge and, mm. and growth of mm. all sorts of things. Well, see, just as, and we've discussed at length on this podcast before, about the way that the word perfect... Um, can derail a bit of an exploration of the creation account in Genesis, where mm. the creation is described as being good and very good, but but not described using the word perfect or even the concept of perfection that, that we inherit more from Greek philosophy. Um, mm. And I think that the same trap is so easy to fall into by sort of saying, oh, yeah, but, uh, you know, after the resurrection, the saints will be, will be perfect. Um, you know, that's kind of what we think we mean when we say sinless, because we sort of feel like sinlessness must be perfect. But it's mm. the same problem. Perfection implies a, a kind of staticness, because mm. you can't change if you're perfect. That's Yeah, because uh, then you'd be less, less than perfect. You'd be something other than perfect, exactly, yeah. You'd be less than perfect. Um, and yet the, the imagery as I read it especially in places like revelation um seems seems to hark back to the goodness of the edenic creation story more than it kind of plugs into this this sort of superstatic perfection um yeah. the other the other reason for the staticness here is of course for so much of christian history the vast majority of christians have lived really really tough lives and the idea yeah. that the good reward waiting for them after death is some kind of ability just to be passive and relax and be still for a little while. I mean, that's got mm. to sound heavenly, literally. If you're working yeah, as a slave, yeah. if you're working as a, you know, agricultural peasant in the, in the farms of Europe. Um, and so a vast amount of our extra biblical tradition, the songs we sing, the, 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 metaphors we reach for a vast amount of those have been informed by a really different experience of of life here on earth um, yeah so you know if you're going to ask you know a modern person who has different health problems um, 
and and different lifestyle and a different very different experience the fact that we most of us don't spend most of our time trying to find food for the next meal mm. puts us at odds with most of human history yeah we try and yeah. instead we try and find ways to trick ourselves not to walk past the pantry after nine yeah, o'clock yeah. at night so you know maybe maybe if revelation was being written today it wouldn't be streets of gold it would be treadmills of gold <laughs> yes <laughs> well this no but this this is actually something really deep and profound and this is where this is where i think we really do need to engage a little bit more thoughtfully with the idea of purgatory so so um to be fair i'm i have no disagreements with this week's lesson whatsoever i like the lesson not only disagree with, but take some theological issue with the the construct of eternal torment and and sort of conscious pain for eternity for for the mm. for the unsaved. Uh, that that raises mm. very very deep problems in my mind, and I can really understand why Christians from a wide variety of traditions over the last few decades have have a, arrived at perspectives that that somewhat distance them from from that history. Um, likewise, purgatory. As presented in the Middle Ages and by various phases of, of the Catholic Church, for example, as this thing where it's almost like a, a supplemental exam. You know, you failed, mm. but we'll give you one more chance. Definitely don't blow this. Or we'll, mm. maybe a, maybe not a supplemental exam, but a, you know, some kind of, well, you, you actually have done wrong, but we'll, instead of damning you to hell for all time, what we'll do is give you some some community service, and we'll see whether we can see a transformation of character. All of that that comes with that heavily questioning and heavily earning type mentality, especially coupled with the whole, you know, paying money to help the the souls of, of my ancestors um, escape from purgatory a little sooner. Um, I, I just have... There's no yeah. there's no resonance that I can find between those sorts of pictures and the kind of stuff we read in the Bible. But... And, and here's the big bud. The, like you're saying, the idea of there being a transforming process, if you like, almost a purging process, this is a different picture of thinking about a kind of purgatory. But it's accessing the fact that there are almost... It's difficult to, to quite picture the whole thing without there being some necessity for transformation. So the question is this, Cam, the treadmills of gold, mm. is that because... In heaven, we'll still need to exercise to stay fit. Is it because in heaven, we'll actually still need to... Like, what What will be the solution? Is the heavenly solution, you don't even need to exercise. You can eat whatever you want. Or is the heavenly solution, you do need exercise, but you don't need fancy external motivations for it. You'll just intrinsically want to exercise. right? Because actually, let's face it, the hard part for lots of us is not the exercise itself. It's the it's the mental state of motivating yeah. ourselves to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so which one of those problems does heaven fix? And and yeah. if it's more the mental motivational step, then that's actually representing a real transformation of the the being that I am. If I suddenly yeah. don't have any desire to procrastinate exercising, um, yeah. is that still me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, and then, or is it that it will still be hard, but there'll be joy in the challenge instead of mm. guilt? And frustration. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, this leads me in a slightly different direction um, to where I thought the discussion would go. But um, getting back to C.S. Lewis's picture of heaven, he pictures heaven as a place where lots of things are really hard. 
oh, right. and, and, and painful. Um, when you get to heaven, it's so real. It's the real thing. And you're almost just a not real enough. The sunlight is too bright and the colours are too vivid and the hmm. grass is too sharp underneath your feet and the sensation of the rocks on the beach is too strong. The thing is too real. Mm. Um, but the people who the people who choose to stay in heaven because of course in the great divorce there's a bus back to hell every week and a lot of people just take the bus because it's easier down in hell hell's a place yeah. where you get everything you want straight away um yeah. uh and um but the people who stay are the people who find joy in that in, in that challenge or who can imagine themselves finding joy in that challenge and of course in the narnia books particularly the last battle lewis's picture of hell is very much a state of mind the, in the last yeah. battle, the dwarves, the dwarves, what the most frightening thing about hell is that the people who are in it think they're in heaven. Mm. They think they're in the right. They think they've understood the universe. They think that it makes sense. Yeah. They, they, they find affirmation and confirmation in all everything they look around them that they have understood. That they are greedy and they are selfish. They are. Uh, self-absorbed they are unimaginative they can't mm. experience the beauty and the joy that's around them they've cut themselves off from it um, they are have not understood reality but the mm. thing that makes it so hellish is that the people in it think that they're in heaven and you would have to say that that is a to my mind a much more frightening picture of hell than <laughs> than someone sitting in fire saying this is hurt mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, that's just that's just made me think. Of, it's an observation. For so much of human history, physical pain and physical sickness have been what dominates our picture of being unwell. And it's yeah. comparatively recently in human societies that we have phrases like mental health. The yeah. recognition that the the wellness of our existence can be be significantly impacted by things that are in the mind that doesn't yeah. make them less real because they can just as substantially um to use a phrase make our lives hell yeah 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 look before we get too much deeper in let's read the the passage we're going to read which i don't think is one that's addressed by the lesson uh, but it is the reason I've suggested it is it's just one that I've not understood um, yeah. myself. I understand most <laughs> of it, except for the last bit. Um, and the, the last bit seems to suggest some, it's a weird picture of the kingdom of heaven. Of course, mm. this isn't necessarily about heaven. Actually, that's a good point. We usually we usually see this parable as a parable about getting into heaven, but that's not actually what it says. Okay. So maybe maybe we should come back to that. But um, it's the first verses of Matthew 22. And I might kick us off. And I'll be interested, I'd be very interested to know if any of our listeners have also felt a bit weirded out by the final verses of this parable. Um, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Look, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. The oxen and the fatted calf have been butchered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king 
was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honour. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. (laughs) <laughs> right. Look, I've got I've got a few things to say. One of them is that I tell my students quite often that if they, uh, uh, I say to them that they don't have to pay attention, but they do have to pretend, um, and that I won't be able to tell the difference. They could mm. be daydreaming, but uh, I say you can actually get away with a lot from school if you just pretend. Um, and I would recommend those of you who don't want to do work at school just practice the art of pretense, and your teachers won't be able to tell the difference. Uh, if you can't pretend though. Um, and you persist in whatever behaviour it is that's causing disruption, I will cast you into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And they have no concept of where the phrase comes from. And it produces zero laughs until about fourth term where they've come to expect it. And um, just two or three days ago, my students were doing a test, my grade 8 class, and there was a class next door making some noise. And they were waiting for their teacher to arrive and they were being quite rowdy. And one of my students said, could you, could you please tell them to be quiet? So I went outside and told them that if they, if they weren't quiet, they would be cast into the outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the students I was talking to were bewildered beyond, <laughs> especially bewildered by the fact that when I said it, my entire class behind me laughed. <laughs> um, so that was just an odd, odd circumstance. Um, so, yeah, the, the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The, the other thing that came to mind, Locke, is this is a distant memory, but do you remember church in the pine forest? Yes. Do you remember when the, a college church used to go up there, up into the Wadigan Mountains, and and different they'd be split up into groups, and different groups would have been given the task on one occasion, I think it was, of preparing a parable. Okay. Um, yeah, and there was um, one of the groups enacted this parable. And uh, I remember it because the the they all wore academic gowns, and they were all wearing black <laughs> academic gowns, except for one of them who was in some fuchsia gown or something from you know some other oh. uni. It was a PhD <laughs> doctoral gown that was a bright colour, and he was the one who was not in the appropriate clothes and was and was cast out. Um, right. So, so that's what I remember. About this. <laughs> um, I mean, there's so many quirky things. So, so, um. In reference to the point, you, the observation you made just before you started reading, is this about about heaven? Is this about the afterlife? Certainly, the the connotation I have with the the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, that seems to me to be a phrase that is typically invoking eternal destinies, and and the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth sounds a bit like consistent with the sort of the picture of torment in hell. That, yeah. that many Christians have, have arrived at. Yeah. Yeah. But why, and, and, why is it the fact that the man had no reply? That seems to be the, oh, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it, it seems that that's the, that's the thing that flips this king over the edge. Yeah. Well, <laughs> first of all, if this is a picture about 
as it, I've heard it interpreted, or I've always sort of assumed vaguely it's a picture about who gets into heaven or maybe why people, what, what's the criteria for getting into heaven or, you know, and, and people, some people explain it with some success, but um, to my mind, less than convincingly by just allegorizing everything. All the mm. clothes mean Jesus Christ, and this means this and this, and it's a, it's a, it becomes a neat package that makes perfect sense, and it, it could well be the intended meaning. But if it was, Christ could have been a little more explicit. Um, <laughs> and um, if it is a question about getting into heaven, and this is the whole notion of purgatory is, is purgatory is not an eternal state; it's a temporary thing. The whole concept of studying purgatory is how do we get in? What's the process for getting in? Who gets in? All the rest of it. Mm. If this parable addresses that question, it's very weird. To start with, the king is, seems to be somewhat um, vindictive. Um, <laughs> so some people killed some of his servants and he's enraged and sends his army to destroy those murderers and burned their city. Yeah. Um, so you would think that the even the eye for the eye, tooth for the tooth would only require them to be killed. Mm. Um, so there's the and burned their city and then he seems to flip a bit at the end it's also a bit weird that that the only criteria for whether people come to the wedding feast is whether they come mm. there's no vetting of, it explicitly says the good and the bad yeah um now that may be something we should take a bit more seriously and think and ponder about maybe this is a better picture maybe genuinely the people who get into heaven are the people who look god in the face and say yeah i'd like to give it a go yeah. Um, um, and and maybe the ones who look at him and say, oh, it's just not for me, maybe they are the ones who don't get in. An idea worth discussing. But that seems to be, you know, what's suggested here. Then there's this idea of getting in, but retrospectively being found yeah. because you're wearing the wrong clothes. That's a weird element. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and... and- I mean, without wanting to go into too many details, one of the activities I've been doing over the last months has been a a fairly protracted negotiation on a formal agreement between a a startup company and a university. And one of the the bizarre little issues that sort of come to the spotlight a little bit is the issue of disciplinary action. And um, essentially, the the founders of the startup company are, are expecting that if there is any issue, that it be sorted out in advance. And basically the university then should commit to taking no disciplinary action against the founders on the basis of, of this particular these particular matters. So obviously if they then go and do something else and, and you know, are yeah. fraudulent with university funds, that would be totally different and, and that would be fine. They're, they, you know, they're not asking the university to um to make them immune from disciplinary action. It's just, just to commit not to troll this particular activity of negotiation up at cons- some random point in the future yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and to, to consider the matter is settled after this agreement is yeah i mean that's to. in large part that's the point of reaching an agreement so that everyone can yeah. then move forward um you know in this particular context so this is the issue that i have um the the argument to the university on that front is well it's actually you you have to admit that it's not a very good quality of life as an employee of an institution where you feel like they have gone to great lengths to pre- to preserve the right at any point in the future to take disciplinary action against you on the basis of some matters that occurred, you know, in this in this negotiation. They yeah. they could pull that out next year or they could wait 10 years. If you don't know, that's 
there's no that's a really un- unpleasant state yeah. to be in and that's the yeah. trouble that i have here with this and, parable and the, just because you're, you're in the banquet the, sorry like just to make it a bit a bit clearer that the issue here involves the use of intellectual property yeah exactly yeah. it's the so and it's it's not it's not that someone's been you know getting free parking illegally uni, at the uni or anything yeah. it's 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 you know can the uni say retrospectively actually we think we deserve more of the intellectual property even though we agreed yeah. yeah, or, you know, actually, now that we've thought about it for two more years, we actually think that the way that you that you did that was, you know, against our policy or against yeah, our yeah. IP policy yeah. or against our commercialization terms or whatever it is, and so we're actually yeah. going to go back in. Like, the point is that to be able to move forward, you need to sort of be able to put that behind you. If there is a disagreement, let's put it on the table now and let's resolve it. Yeah. We just want to be able to move forward resolved. And that's kind of that's kind of the problem here because this person's gotten into the banquet. Yeah. Like what it what it and I I don't think this is the point of the parable. So let me make that yeah. extremely clear. I don't think this is the point of the parable. But it is a disconcerting picture of the kingdom of heaven if if you are to interpret this parable to mean that once you're in you know, once you're in heaven, still even there, just the slightest slip up, wearing the wrong, you know, and I know that there's more, it's not just accidentally putting on the wrong shirt. I know that there's more symbolic intent and attitude happening here. But the the point I'm making, I think, still stands. Most of us, I think, have a picture that heaven is, after all of this has been settled, the argument has been yeah, balanced, everything's been settled, and that's it. We don't have to be, don't have to be constantly for eternity in heaven living with the concern that one day we might be kicked out to the darkness yeah. where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth i yeah yes why is the man speechless why doesn't he say oh actually i don't have any other clothes except for these yeah. does 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 that passage suggest he knows he's done something wrong that he's been caught out was it traditional yeah. for the people to supply clothes when you walked in the door to a wedding i can't imagine that being the case but maybe mm. um Okay, the next, the next thing is, uh, maybe in in uh, the general theme of our discussions on this podcast has been uh, lessons. This is an interesting topic. There's a few interesting points in here. We by and large agree. What if we are thinking about this more than we ought, and there are other more important things? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's the basic theme. So what what happens if the state of suffering people is more important to think about than the state of people who died? Mm. What if we should be thinking more about how we can help people than more about whether we've ticked off every item on the checklist to get into heaven? Um, so it, continuing that vein, if this parable is not about the process for getting into heaven, which would be a relief mm. to me, what is it about? Yeah. Um, the weeping, if the weeping and gnashing of teeth is not a, eternal suffering, what what is it? Okay, I don't have a good answer to that, so I'm going to sidestep it. Um the one thing that does happen twice in this parable is people being disinvited people mm. being being removed from the guest list the first set of guests are the original invitees yeah um but they ignore the messengers and they go their own way and then the guy the person who's not wearing the wedding clothes, it doesn't use the same phrase. Uh, the go their mm. own way was up in verse five, but not wearing the right clothes. That's, that's a bit indicative of going his own way. Yeah. 
Um, and it seems to me that it might be connected to the idea of, of just ignoring the, the context, ignoring the, the point, ignoring the person whom the banquet is celebrating. Um, mm. and, and maybe that's, maybe that's an, an, an interesting and important point there. Um, yeah, I'm reminded of, um, I'm reminded of something that can, it was certainly this season. It was probably only three, four weeks ago. Uh, you told the story about the violinist who after finish, uh, it was a famous violinist. I forget the name. Um, after finishing a performance of a great work, someone came up to him and said, Oh, um, I'd give everything to be able to play the violin like that. And he looked at them and said, I have given mm. everything. And that's mm. the difference. That's the difference. Um, oh, yeah, I'd love to get to the I'd love to get to the wedding, but my I've got a crop in the field. Sorry, the crop's in the field. Yeah. I'd, re- I'd really love to come to the wedding. Um, uh, yeah, oh, I'd love to come to the wedding. Oh, Tuesday? Oh, no, I have a business meeting on Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, oh, but I'd love to come to the wedding. Yeah, well, yeah. do you? I mean, what it does seem to suggest very much is that the price of finding God is wanting him. Mm. Re- really wanting him. Yeah. Um, and uh, maybe that's what the clothes is about. Maybe there's some suggestion here of someone just not going to the effort. Right. A sort of half-hearted commitment, which, yeah. which, which is a moral that extends beyond heaven. Um, so maybe the weeping and gnashing of teeth is also extends beyond the concepts of dying in heaven. There are getting back to our concept on states of mind. Um, I know not everyone who wants to be well is well physically or mentally. Uh, uh, so maybe I don't agree with what I'm about to say, but um, no, I don't agree with it. So I'm not going to say it. <laughs> well. This is gonna, this is the trouble. It, I was going to say the cost of being well mentally. Maybe maybe you're avoiding um, making my life hell. Maybe the problem with saying I don't want my life to be hell. Maybe that is really wanting God, and if you want God enough, then it will fix it. But for some people, it seems it doesn't. They they have a yeah. lot of mental anguish. And it, and if if it is possible for physical illness to alter a state of mind, which is demonstrably the case, there mm. must be some people whose lives are hell in terms of mental torment. Because yeah. of physical illness, so I, I I'm not sure if I want to go there. Well, uh, but that leads me, and maybe this is a thought that we could just just steer towards in conclusion. Um, it leads me exactly on to uh, sort of back to this idea of purgatory, back to the idea of trans transition, transformation. And let me just preface this uh, by by making the observation that it seems to me that the Adventist Christian tradition has overly emphasized the discontinuity of the end time events whether that's the um destruction of this world and the creation of the new earth whether that's the instantaneous transformation from a from a state a sub a state of unconscious sleep to a resurrection existence um a a perfect resurrection existence a perfect resurrection existence with perfect character yeah, it seems to me that the pictures that we've tended to construct have been pictures that emphasize the discontinuity. One moment we're like this, and then in a, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we're transformed. Mm. And I'm deliberately, that's a biblical quote there. I'm not, I'm not mm. trying to shy away from the fact that, that this Adventist emphasis is indeed present in parts of the Bible. But what it seems to me is that there are other passages 
but seem to speak of trans transition, transformation, process, transformative process. Um, and we don't have much dialogue about that, and the that's kingdom. fine. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. The it's just that it heaven, seems... Sorry, like the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which is planted yeah. and grows. And the kingdom, yeah. our story is about the kingdom of heaven as well. Yeah, yeah. The, the mustard the, seed it, is describing the, the same thing we've just described. Exactly. The mustard seed has to grow. Back in Daniel, when the rock is cut without human hands, it it smashes the statue, but that's not the end of the story. It then grows and fills the whole earth, yeah. right? And and when Adventists tell that story, it's all about the smashing of the statue, um, not so much about the growing and the filling the whole earth. That's a pro process, sort of transformational yeah. thing at the end of that story. So all I'm commenting on is that within the biblical metaphors of this thing, there seems to be a tension, a paradox between the discontinuity of instantaneous transformation and the continuous process of growth of of um continual transition yeah of transformation in that sense anyway this is this is where i'm going with this it comes back to this idea of purgatory of purgatory asterisks where the footnote yeah. is not the medieval kind yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but the the lesson posed this posed this question that really got my brain thinking. Thinking, it, it just says in the end we are either totally saved or totally lost. There is no middle ground, and and then it says we can have either eternal life or or we will face eternal destruction. And it goes on to ask about what choices should we be making today in the light of that sort of reality, which is exactly the question we've been discussing. How yeah. does all this stuff actually impact the the decisions I might make? So I'm on board with it most of the way, but I just found myself a little niggled by the either totally saved or totally lost. You've just been talking about the f the reality of the fact that it, we can be unwell. Um, yep. I've talked previously with people and maybe on this podcast about, about the much more trivial reality of what about an amputee? Yeah. Is the resurrected body of that amputee, does it have the limb back or not? Because yeah. if it doesn't have the limb back, then that seems to be somehow imperfect. And yet Jesus's resurrection body retains the scars of his crucifixion. So maybe yeah. there's some sort of indication there. But if it does have the limb back, so yeah, if it does have the limb back, then the the for some amputees, that limblessness or that that amputation has become a real part of who they are. And I'm I'm thinking also more profoundly about, you know, um, we all know in our personality, in our psyche, in our attitudes, in our struggles within our yeah. own mind, there are parts of us that are very much us yeah. that are also almost, well, I was going to say they're not savable. Um, let me just say they're the sorts of things that don't seem to us to be that which would be saved. And so when the question kind of posed this stark we're either totally saved or totally lost it felt to me a little bit extreme because it seems to me that even when i think of being saved i think of some parts of me that oh. will be yeah washed away that will be cleansed that will be refined in the refiner's fire that, i mean all of these biblical metaphors seem to imply that there are some bits that get discarded on the way because they're unhelpful baggage and yet and this is the sort of the gnarly detail if they are done away with instantaneously in a real discontinuous process, doesn't that make the resurrected being somehow not in fact me? Yeah, it thinks it's you, but it might not be you. 
Yeah. What if that? Whereas, because, and I'm only, and I'm speaking from the limitation of a finite being in a physical finite world. But it seems to me that when we need to change as humans, that's a process. Yeah. And God, God calls us to enter His kingdom to be part of this process of aligning our attitudes and changing yeah. and growing. He calls yeah. us to that here in this life, and it well, seems to me, why would that not continue? But as I say that, I hear myself describing something that feels a little bit like Purgatory 2.0, and I'm not entirely sure what to do with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, your comment that it starts in this life is, I think, insightful. What Jesus describes in the parable we've read is about the kingdom of God, which he said is has come. Is here mm. now. It's within you. So there's there's that dimension needs, in my mind, a longer discussion because I don't. But if heaven is something that begins now, then we don't have to worry what it will look like later as much, mm. because it's not like we're sitting and looking forward to something we hope it's going to be good. Um, yeah. uh, that's a different dimension. It also does seem that Jesus is intentionally ambiguous, and the Bible is ambiguous on this point. It, you cannot read this final statement, many are invited but few are chosen, hmm. and conclude that Christ was trying to be clear. Yeah. Because, <laughs> So is the moral of this story that heaven is exclusive and that only a few people can get in? Or is it, or is it the moral of this story that it's really easy to get into heaven? And if you read this story and think it's about heaven, it's very firmly in both camps. Mm. Uh, that, that yes, only oh, not everyone gets into heaven. And yes, everyone everyone can get into heaven, the good and the bad. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not the only place that Jesus does it. Um, we've got one more passage and then we might leave it here, Locke, and I'll tie it up with some of your thoughts as well. Um, this is in Luke. Uh, someone asked him straight out, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Many will try to enter it and will not be able to. You say, oh, well, that's, that's pretty explicit, right? Because that means heaven's pretty exclusive. Um, and then he says, some people will come to the door and say, open it. And the master will say, I don't know you. And they'll say, but we ate with you and you drank with you. And he says, I, I don't know where you come from. Away from me, you evildoers. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and they'll come from the west and from the north and from the south, and we'll take that. So obviously heaps of people are getting it. It's heaps and heaps. So at the end of this, he's been asked an explicit question. Mm. Will only a few people be saved? And Jesus says, oh, it's a narrow road. It's a narrow road. But people are going to come from the east and the west and the north and the south. <laughs> and so you would have to say after reading that, that it is not one of Christ's priorities to make some of these questions clear to us. Mm. Which means mm. the question can't be quite as important. And in terms of in terms of the purgatory, if you say if you say heaven will involve some process, but heaven starts now, that brings your focus back to the process now. Mm. And if you say, well, heaven has no process, it's a it's a sharp change. I'll suddenly become perfect. Um, but getting there requires a growth experience here on earth, which even the people who believe in a sharp discontinuity believe that we have a relationship, a transformational relationship with God now mm. that in some way facilitates that sharp thing, then then it turns out that what you believe about whether there's a sort of a, uh, what was the word you used? I liked it, um, continuous or discontinuous. Mm. Uh, whether there's a gradual uh, a process or a sharp change, the moral of the story, both stories is the same. Yeah. 
maybe that's why Jesus's parables are a little ambiguous on the details, because at the end of the day, the the action items are very, very similar. Yeah, maybe he was just stirring them up. I like to think that he was. Um, uh, we, we'll leave it there, like I'm eyeing the clock, although it's been a very fun discussion. Uh, we haven't fully answered the questions to do this parable in my own mind, but... Um, but... <laughs> something to discuss at another date i still find it very odd uh also very interested in what our listeners think um they might have an insight uh, which would make this clear or a comment or a a criticism or feedback of any kind uh if you uh do then send us an email at the address sabbath school from home at gmail.com uh we monitor that uh not every week but once once or twice a month we pop on and just check what emails have come in and ideas that are emailed to us we usually find a way of working into into the recording so it's it's not a very uh, time synchronous way of participating in the discussion but does give you a chance to to um contribute which we enjoy um please uh, share this podcast with anyone that you feel would benefit and join us again next week